Um, how about we stand right now? I want to read a little passage of scripture, and then we're going to get to work. So First uh, Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 is what I want to read. Um, I'm going to do, if you guys don't have Bibles, go ahead and uh, raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get your Bible. If not, it's going to be up on the screen. Uh, I'm going to read this little section of Scripture. We're going to do a little bit of a recap, um, just because we have not been in it in the past couple of weeks, and it'll be a very, very brief recap. And then we'll get to work looking at the larger subject matter of what I think is really important here um, in terms of how we're invited to live and think about what it looks like to live in a world that's pretty messed up. I'm, again, uh, there's... We all recognize that. We can all just simply identify uh, the fact that things are broken, and how do we contribute, not further to the brokenness, but how do we contribute to undoing the brokenness, or to live in a way that is not uh, defined by the curse, but that overcomes the curse, right? That's kind of the big idea. So, First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, begins like this. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert, sober-minded, so that when so that you may pray. Above all, love one another deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. God has given to each one of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself is speaking through you. You have a gift of helping others. Do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. That's a great spot to just stop. And then I'm going to pray and then we'll get to work. So Jesus, thank you for your word. Uh, Pray, God, even now that you would reshape our understanding of who you want us to be, who we see ourselves as, and how we can live in this world as being sources of life and blessing and wholeness and healing and hope, as opposed to just simply contributing to the violence and the chaos and the anger and the destruction all around us. So right now, God, we pray for your help, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Why don't you all grab a seat? So uh, we've been looking at this entire book called First Peter. It's written by, obviously, Peter to a bunch of followers of Jesus that are scattered throughout the ancient Roman world in a particular part of Asia Minor. And he's uh, really writing to them because he recognizes that they are going through some tremendous difficulties and hardships and suffering and trials and whatnot. And he's writing to help encourage them so that they would remain faithful to Jesus to live in a way that's consistent with God, not capitulating to the culture around them, not simply degenerating into chaos themselves, not simply uh, becoming a part of the broader culture around them, and uh, but to live distinctly, not to live in a way in which they are uh, completely detaching. That's not the idea. It's not Christians never completely detach. Christians, however, live while remaining distinct. And it takes a lot of wisdom and uh, just finesse and uh, a unique ability by the Holy Spirit to be able to do that well. Otherwise, we go to one or two extremes. We either go to the extreme of simply ca- uh, cashing out of society and culture at large. We don't want to have anything to do with anybody else who's not a Christian, who's not like us, who thinks like us, act like us. That, that's one way. The other way is to simply become like everybody else around you, where there's no distinction whatsoever. Your morals are literally nothing uh, unlike the morals of the culture around you. You look just like everybody else. That's the big idea as well. Those are two extremes that are very, very possible for us to fall into. And we want to live in a way, because that's what the instructions are given to us by, by, by the founders of the church. You know, his name is Peter, and 
James and John and ultimately leading up the food chain to Jesus, who is basically, here's how I'm inviting you to live and follow the way of the Holy Spirit. This is what leads to life. And that's what we want to really think about and consider this morning. So I want to start with just that first little phrase. Again, this is a little bit of a review because we looked at this a couple weeks back. But he starts with this phrase, uh, the end of all things is near. And then he uses his transitional word. He says, therefore, therefore, live in a certain way. So I want to just as way of um, brief highlight, like look back. What, what is the therefore? What's that transition from? And what we pointed out was he wants us to be aware of the fact that the end of all things is near. Now, again, if you want to listen to this message online, I go into broader terms in uh, explaining what this, I think this is all about. But I'm going to give a quick little highlight. This is just a very brief little one. So what is the phrase, the end of all things is near? These are basically one of four possibilities that I think you can think about. And I just uh, chronicled them up here like this. It's either the end of the world, completely the end of the world. So we just call this terrestrial. Planet Earth is going to be bye-bye. And uh, that's a little bit of a, a challenge as far as the interpretation, because that, this was 2,000 years ago, and planet Earth has not gone bye-bye yet. So if, if that's the case, if Peter actually lived with this idea, hey, planet Earth is going to be destroyed right away, um, then either he was not writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, or he had misconceptions as to what that meant. But again, that's one possibility. One possibility. The next is the end of all things Jewish. In other words, this could be Jewish-specific, meaning the end of Judaism as it was known, the end of Judaism as a, uh, a religious uh, movement in the first century that was situated around Jerusalem, kind of spanned throughout the ancient Roman world. Again, that's another possibility because we know that in AD 70, the landscape of Judaism was radically shaped as the city itself was ransacked, as the temple itself was destroyed, and as the people of Israel basically were scattered. Um, the Jewish specific is another way I think about this. Another way is the demise of those that are reading this. In other words, those people that are living within that particular region, they are facing this imminent crisis that will destroy society as they know. That's another possibility. Um, I think personally, this is this is kind of what I'm going to lead towards, and I think this it, it refers to the end of the world system as it has been known, the end of a world system with the dawn of the kingdom of God. And let me let me put it this way: the end of a world system that involves arrogance, lies, sexual distortion, sin, violence, death. In other words, what I think Peter's saying is that the end of this world as we've known it, the system that occupies the operating system that occupies the world around us, it's coming to a close. But a new system, a new operating system, a new world has dawned at the moment of resurrection. And we're kind of living in the midst of this, uh, this, this odd transitional moment between the end of a day, meaning this old world system, and the dawn of a brand new one in which Jesus rose again. And he promises one day this entire earth will be covered with the glory of God. It has not happened fully yet. It, we're, we're still in this moment. It's kind of like twilight. It's like the, 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 the old day has not fully gone, and the new day has not fully, fully, completely arrived. It's, it's begun, and we see evidences of it, we see episodes of it, we see moments of it, but we also are horribly aware of the fact that the night is still there. There's still evil that rules and pervades the world. There's still deception, there's still lies, there's still arrogance, there's still death, decay, and all of these things that define the world system in which we live in. So another way of thinking about it, next slide, as we kind of go on, that because Jesus is renewing all things, and again, you want a further elaboration on this, just look at 
what Paul has to write about this in Romans chapter 8. He goes into extensive uh, unpacking of what this looks like. Uh, the idea is to live now as you would live on that day when it fully dawns. To live now as you would when that day fully dawns. Another way to think about it, I'm not sure if I have a next slide, next slide on this. Um, all right, I'm going to go to this in just a moment, but just keep it here for now. Um, the way I was thinking about this in a converse type of a way is living according to the way of corruption and death and deceitfulness and violence and anger and hatred and bitterness. All of that is like investing in a stock that will tank. Living according to a defunct, broken sexual moral or ethic and aligning your life around that, at some point it will fail. And when it fails, you will break with it. And what I, what I think Peter is inviting us into is recognizing because a new day has dawned, this old day, this old operating system that was part and parcel of the world around us, is coming to a close. To live as if you are invested in that will ultimately lead you to a point of incredible frustration and brokenness. So in other words, live according to the day as it has dawned. And this is the day in which Peter is going to elucidate on and unpack and the rest of the New Testament writers tell us about. Last thing I want to say before we just jump into this. I think it's really important to just note that Christianity at its core is not just simply about somehow getting your like little eternal life ticket stamped so that when you die, you'll have something secured in the afterlife. And for far too long, that's what Christianity, at least in the West, has been viewed as. You know, the, getting your little punch card right, getting the little code correct, saying the nice little correct things so that you know you have this kind of... Uh, uh, elusive assurance that one day when you close your eyes in death, you'll go to heaven when you die. And I, I want to suggest this. It's not less than that, but it's far more than that. And to think of Christianity in terms of only that relegates Christianity and its, uh, its, its usefulness, its purposefulness to something way beyond after death. And right now that leaves us kind of in this moment, in this world, like, what are we supposed to do now? What am I supposed to do with people I cannot stand right now? What are we supposed to do with a boss that gets on my nerves right now? What am I supposed to do with a child that's unruly right now? What am I supposed to do with a husband or a wife or a spouse that is just doing things right now that are an annoying system? How do we live now? How do we live in a world trying to make sense of a dozen plus people, plus a couple dozen shot, many dead children? Children, how do we make sense of this? Better yet, how do we live in a way that's distinct from all of that? Without being overcome in flashes of despair or without somehow just capitulating, saying this is just the way the world is and let's live according to it. When in Rome, live as a Roman. That idea, that's not how Christians have ever historically lived according to this. And what I want to suggest to you is that Peter is basically inviting these people to live in a way that's consistent with what Jesus has launched on Resurrection Sunday. All right. As we kind of go on to this, what Peter's going to do is going to begin to assign these moral codes to this minority community. Again, if you think of it, the church that, to whom Peter's writing, they are the minority community. They don't have political clout. They, don't, they haven't formed like the religious party like that, that you know, goes around campaigning in ancient Roman world. These are a minority people. They're relegated off to people think they're nuts. In fact, many of them, the way they lived back in the day was by way of uh, guild 
a gilded system where you would go down and you'd sell your wares, your goods, whatever it was. But however, the way that you would oftentimes enter those markets and you were required to pay sacrifices and homage to, you know, whatever god or goddesses that were basically uh, residing over those particular regions. But as a Christian, you're like, I don't believe in Zeus or Artemis or any of these other deities or gods. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to pay homage to these. However, if you walk in, you're going to get ready to sell your stuff and you're not going to pay homage. People are going to look at you with suspicion. Like, do you not, do you, do you hate Artemis? You're like, I don't hate Artemis, but I don't worship Artemis either because Artemis is not real. Like Artemis does not exist. They would be like shocked by that. And therefore they begin rumors and, you know, send posts on social media telling everybody don't buy the leather goods that you're preparing because you are somehow an atheist, right? That's the way, that's the charge that was given. They, were, they didn't believe in the gods, and therefore you're not marked. So they would engage in these moments of suffering. But again, what Peter's saying to them, live in a way that's very distinct from the culture around you. Don't give in, don't capitulate, don't become like, but at the same time, don't run away. So how do we do this well? What he's going to do now is going to give what we would describe as these moral codes to this minority community called the church, attempting to live faithfully before Jesus in a culture that's marked by decay, deceit, violence, and death. And here's the simple things that he gives them. And we'll, we, okay, just again, some of you guys know the drill. This is actually going to be one sermon marked by two weeks, all right? You're welcome. Again, you guys know the drill. That's how this works sometimes. It's not part one, part two, but one sermon, all right? But what he's going to do, and we'll get into the, 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 the moral codes that he basically uh, invites the followers of Jesus to live according to pray, love, and serve. Not eat, pray, and love, but pray, love, and serve. And he's going to tell them, like, hey, here's, here's the way I'm inviting you to think about how to live. And we'll get to each one of these uh, next week. But what I really want to think about now is just the thought that really struck me is what Peter's doing is he's actually giving them a morality to live according to. And this is not different than what Paul does in New Testament or even what Jesus does. That they're actually giving them, ascribing, here's a morality, or here's a moral code, live according to this, and not according to that. And as I was kind of studying and thinking through this, I was just like, that's, that's kind of fascinating, that the Christian ethos is not just about a moral code. It's far more than that, of course, but it's not less than that as well. And I think for a long time, people were like shocked and angered and frustrated because the Bible gives a moral code. But guys, the fact of the matter is, we live in a society that is constantly giving us moral codes to live by. The question is, what moral code are you going to give into? Are you going to allow, let, shape your life, or that you're going to basically just tap out and follow? Like, what are the moral codes? And what I would suggest to you, that what Peter's doing is consistent with the rest of the New Testament, is that these moral codes ultimately are shaped by Jesus. And not only that, they're moral codes that actually are eternal, meaning they literally work in every ancient and modern culture and civilization. Pray, love, and serve. They all have currency 2,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, as they will 5,000 years from now. Because these are the things that you and I as human beings, we, we want done to us. We want to be able to have some sort of interaction with God and know what it means to be accepted and loved by God. That's the idea of praying. We want to be loved. We want to at least know how to at least love, even though we may not be that great at loving other people. We at least want others to love us perfectly, right? So we want it. We have a hard time giving it. And the same thing as serving. Like when someone comes to you and they just like effortlessly, selflessly do an act of kindness serving you, 
unless you're a stone, your heart is filled with gratitude. You're like, God, that's amazing. Those people are really, 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 really kind. The way that they treated me with respect and dignity and value, I feel loved and cared for and, and served. Like, we, we value these things. And when a culture lives according to these value systems or value codes or moral codes, uh, it has an impact upon the world around and impacted by it. So with that being said, what I want to do right now is I, I thought it would be kind of good to just think about the history of uh, moral codes or moral history. And uh, another word for this is, is ethics. So what I want to do right now is I'm going to take a look at a, a real brief jaunt through history and think about how morality has shaped throughout the years. And hopefully this won't put you to sleep, but hopefully, if anything, it will be helpful to think about like actually what Peter's doing and why this is so uh, so powerful and so life-changing and life-altering, and yet at the same time, we're invited to be a part of this, to let the codes and the morality that Peter's inviting the followers of Jesus to live into and how that will ultimately shape us. So what I thought would be kind of good to just, first of all, to think about, like, what is morality? I think in terms of, like, definition, what is morality? Um, a simple way of defining it is these are the rules by which the society exhorts its members to behave by now, we'll take a look at how this kind of has played out throughout history. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Alistair McIntyre. He was a, a Marxist communist that turned to a Catholic philosopher, and he has written extensively about this. Uh, he describes it this way. Ethics, or in other words, morality, finds its meaning in the distinction between man as he happens to be and man as he could be. And I think it's, there's a lot, of, a lot of beauty to that. Man as he happens to be versus man as he could be. It's the idea of potential, like potentiality. Again, we can look around the world and realize, like, man as he is, human beings as he is, not just man being gendered man, but human beings as they are, pretty broken, pretty messed up. And again, the circumstances that have happened over this past week has just been another wide-eyed reminder of how dysfunctional and broken human beings have been and currently are and really doing anything pervasive in light of or against things like evil. It's just there. We try to ignore it. We think that we can outflank it until it rears its head and we are forced to stare it in its eyes. And then we oftentimes don't know what to do with it. What I would suggest to you is that we begin to think about this is morality is this picture of like casting a vision of what we can become and who we are all ultimately being shaped by. So with that being said, as we begin to jump into this, uh, there's a guy by the name of Keenan Malek. He is an author. He had written a book called The Quest for the Moral Compass. Uh, he's a polymath that's been trained in neurobiology and the history of science and study of all of these things. And this guy's fascinating human being. And uh, I, don't, I don't think he's a Christian. In fact, I think he actually might be an atheist. But he offers a lot of really interesting thoughts in terms of breaking this down. Again, the way that you can think about a history of how morals have been shaped throughout history, there's a lot of different ways in which you can slice this and dice this and cut it up. Uh, this is just simply the way in which he does this. He breaks it down into three main categories. We'll go through each one, and then we'll wrap it up with some, I think, really important uh, instruction from Scripture as to how to make sense of all of this. So number one, he describes, first of all, the idea of heroic morality. Heroic morality. You think of this in terms of like a hunting or a tribal era or an agricultural era where you had land and you had, uh, you know, various tribes that lived within that land and the way they gathered their food was by going out to the land and killing a deer and they would feed, you know, their tribe, their group of people. And so as a result of that, uh, you have multiple tribes and within those multiple tribes, you have the formation of kings or leaders or whatnot. And the question is, is how, do, how does tribe A interact with tribe B? More importantly, how does tribe A interact amongst itself? 
question is, where does morality get derived from or come from in terms of that tribe? How are they live? How do they make sense of dealing with each other and living with each other and, uh, uh, you know, navigating challenges and hardships that they find themselves in the midst of? And the way this is oftentimes broken down is within a heroic morality for example, you can even see like the ancient Greeks or the Chinese or the East and the West. Uh, they framed oftentimes their ideas of morality around these myths, stories, if you would. And within those cultures, you would oftentimes have a master class. This would be people at the very, very high end of the food chain. They're, they're powerful. They're strong. They're healthy. They're, they, they're able to you know, procreate a lot. And then you have the slave class, the people that basically served those others. And so the big idea what you would have with regard to that is that humans would oftentimes carve out space for dignity and honor, oftentimes in the face of immoral gods. And so they had a belief in some form of a god or mythical deities or entities, gods or goddesses. And yet at the end of the day, the gods that they worshipped and uh, gave themselves to, they were capricious. They couldn't be trusted. I mean, again, if you are familiar at all with ancient Greek uh, mythology, you realize that those gods act more like superpowered human beings right? Superpower human beings, as opposed to this moral agent that's really ultimately good and ultimately powerful. They might have had a lot of power, but they didn't have a lot of goodness. You get the idea? And so as a result of that, the question is, how do you live in a society where these are the entities that have power? And within those cultures, what you would have is a king or a leader or a ruler that had all this power, and they were the ones that would basically say, here's how you're here to live. So it's kind of very top-down, they set the moral code for culture and society. So if you think of it in this idea like a heroic morality, they valued, their values were derived from a tribal leader, a king, or the master class, the people that were at the top of the food chain. They were the ones that would basically say, here's how we're going to live, and everybody follows suit. Within this culture, you would have kind of the idea that um, survival was an incredible value. You just You wanted to survive. So as a result of that, anything that promoted survival was morally, here's the important thing, morally essential. The tribe next to you, they stole your goat. Well, you go kill them. That's what you do. You can't let somebody get away with that. They steal your goods. You do something that's going to counterstrike and attack them because your survival as a tribe is dependent upon you basically exercising, and it was viewed as moral. You come home after, you know, killing several tribesmen from another clan, and you'd be celebrated. Yeah, he killed 16 people, and he's got the foreskins strung around his waist or whatever. Like, again, it's biblical stuff. You see stuff like that. Not Jesus stuff, but biblical stuff. The point that I'd make is this, is that you look at these types of morals, and we hear, we hear these stories sometimes. We're, like, morally outraged, and you should be. You should be. We've learned there are different ways to live that treat other people with dignity, value, and respect. But again, this is the way the world has kind of moved and grown and progressed in certain ways or regressed in other ways. But the big idea is that survival of the tribe was the most important thing. So fighting, killing, colonization, all of these were means of expanding your, your, your people, your tribe. Uh, here's another one that would be a value. Reproduction was huge. Women having as many babies as they can was huge. Um, polygamy was huge. Why? Uh, not because they were just all having fun and playing around, but there was not a lot of men to go around. A lot of them were being killed in battle. So you had way more women than men, so you had this odd mixture ratio. So 
more women wanting to have children to basically feed the tribe to make it grow and become protected uh, became really important, really significant. Now, again, I'm not going to go into all of this, and if you have studied this type of stuff before, you're probably going to think, he forgot about this and that. Again, I'm going to let everybody down, but I'm, just, I'm giving you a really brief oversight of how morality has come down to us through the ages. Now, in that ancient culture and that civilization, reproduction was huge. So being able to have lots of babies was a way of making up for the survival rate of the tribe. Um, loyalty to tribe was really important. Um, if there was ever any uh, suspicion uh, within the tribe that kind of caused you, caused others to think that you're not loyal to the tribe, or if you showed uh, kindness to outside tribes, that would be not welcomed. Um, and so therefore it would be viewed as maybe a criminal action. It would be viewed as immoral. So again, in that ancient culture, you can think of it this way. The idea, and I'm just going to give you a modern example that kind of dovetails an ancient example. The idea of killing your offspring. Unthinkable. The grave immoral because you're killing the future. That was a big idea. You're killing the future of our tribe. You don't, you don't kill a child, whether it's in the womb or after the womb or whatever. You just, you, you protect the children because they are literally the future of our tribe. And that was oftentimes, uh, again, part of that moral framework in which an ancient heroic morality was, was uh, framed around. I want to move on, jump on into the idea of like a monotheistic uh, morality. And this is another language or terminology that he uses to describe this. And within this, he describes this, uh, this movement on planet Earth, and again, I think it's important to note that these are not necessarily in consequential order. In other words, at one point, it kind of covers a certain span. And then I would even say that really all of these are probably taking place at some point on planet Earth, somewhere right now, all of them in some varying degree. But the point is, as he goes on to describe monotheistic morality, this is the idea that Judaism, Christianity, Islam, that comes on the scene. And basically what happened was this massive shift from being... Um, having multiple gods in which people were not really sure as to where they stood with the gods, you know, like Greek culture or even uh, various Asian cultures, um, to now a shift to a monotheistic religion, meaning there's one God that created all things. And this one God, and again, there's various shades, obviously, and differences and distinctions between Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. But the one thing that they do share in common is at least this idea, in theory, that there's one God that created all things. All human beings are made in his image. Therefore, uh, it elevated human beings. So there's a, there's a level of value and dignity and respect that, that people, human beings, are, are, are owed because they were created by God. Now, what you oftentimes see within this, um, it was this idea that human beings, apart from God, are incapable of really doing any good in and of themselves. It's, it, was a, it was an inbred idea that apart from God, from the outside, from external, doing something, giving us something, that we as human beings, we are incapable on our own to figure out the ultimate good within tribe, community, and people. And therefore, we have, uh, within our context, where we just keep breaking things, keep breaking things. And so what the monotheistic morality promised was that we are going to tap into God and we are going to basically create a system and a culture where people will live according to the dictates of what this God has to say because we are created in his image and because human beings are weak and corrupt and flawed. Um, and within this particular worldview, you have this idea that values were derived from God or his representatives. 
Because God, obviously, in each of these religions is invisible. That the God that reveals himself is revealed through these various uh, people that represent him. So that could be a priest, an imam, or a pope. And they were the ones that were basically delivering the morals of the day. Now, again, I think it's important to just note, and I think it's an obvious point to just note, but in each of these instances that we're going to look at, every single one of them, they're prone to uh, distortions, they're prone to decay, and they're prone to manipulations. So anybody that comes on the scene, again, you can just simply look at a very cursory uh, highlight of Christendom that spread across uh, the European nations. Was that a perfect description or an analogy or parallel to the kingdom that Jesus was, was creating? Absolutely not. It was really messy and it was wicked. Not wicked in a good way, but wicked in a bad way. It was bad. There's a lot of pervasive evil that just spread. So the values, I would say, within this, they were derived from God and or God's representative. And within this, you had the importance of being obedient, living in obedience to God and his representatives, these priests, these imams, these popes. Um, and loyalty was now moved upwards to the institution. So as opposed to simply being loyal to the tribe, now you're loyal to the institution. In other words, the institution now becomes basically the tribe. And any form of disloyalty to the institution basically creates or puts you at odds. And again, we know history. We know that many people have been put to death in ancient Christendom as well as even in modern day worlds where Islam has sort of this uh, authoritarian rule. And they will basically say we get all of our moral code directly from Allah himself. And any violation of that, we will, we will behead you. And that was kind of the idea. And we still see that happening even in today's world. And then lastly, he describes this idea of morality being shaped by what he describes simply as this modern morality. This could be the modern industrial technological age in which we live in. Uh, I would even kind of add to that the individual. So what we've seen throughout history, obviously, and even various forms even in modern world, is that there has been a consistent failure on behalf of institutions. So whether that be the Catholic Church having, uh, you know, becoming embroiled in sexual scandals or even evangelicalism circles where, you know, super, super, super duper megastar pastor who's got, you know, three trillion people in his church and he just flies jets for a living and all of a sudden does something horrible and scandalous. Now, again, the institution has been embroiled with brokenness and it's failed and as a result of that that kind of creates in in people's minds how can we how can we trust this institution it's failed it's lied to us it's not good it's it's full of distortions and contradictions and so for obvious reasons people have become extremely skeptical in modern world uh of shaping our morality. Where do we get our morality from? It causes people, again, when you have a priest or a pastor or a leader stand up there and say, hey, everybody listening to me, love your wife, don't download porn, and be a really good human being. And he comes to find out that the guy has actually had multiple relationships with women that are not his wife, and he's constantly downloading porn. That's the worst case scenario, like pornographic images of children. You begin to realize, like, this guy cannot be trusted for the type of morality he's trying to tell us about. Does that, does that make sense? So that's, that's led us to our modern world, which we live in, where there's deep skepticism and cynicism as to where do we derive our moral codes from. You guys doing okay? Good. All right. Because these, as well as traditional communities, they've dissolved. The, the very, we would call it maybe the institution of marriage has been under incredible assault. My, my parents divorced 
and I grew up as a child trying to make sense of like, you know, how, how do I make sense of marriage? I remember as a, as a young uh, teenager, like, I will never get married, ever, ever, because I, I, hate, I hate marriage. I don't want to have anything to do with that. 30 years into it, but things have been a little bit different. But the point that I would make is this, that when we see failed institutions or failed communities, it, and those were the sources of moral codes that were being given to us, and we see them dissolve or fail or break, it causes us to ask this collective question, then where do we get our sense of right and wrong from? Glad you asked. Because secularism has basically replaced that. And what secularism is, is kind of edging off any form of religious idea or any idea that God is the one that's the source of morality or giving moral codes to live according to. Secularism basically says, hey, look, because you are an individual as a human being, and again, things like the Enlightenment uh, and as well as even, I would add, the Reformation has kind of created this context where you matter as a human being independent from the institution or organization that you came from. So what's happened over the past several hundred years is there's been this idea that says you as an individual, you are more important than the tribe you came from and the family you came from, than the religion that you were brought up in or whatever type of religious affiliation you found yourself connected to. You matter. Your voice is most important. So we live in a world right now, and if anything, this helps at least give us some definition as to where and what world we're living in right now. The world we live in right now is the world where many sociologists would describe we live within what's called the autonomous self, meaning you as a human being, you as a self-made human being, you get to pick and choose what is best for you. That's where we're living right now. You add to that uh, the internet. You add to that this ability to be uh, anonymous, this, uh, this sense where our some of our closest friends, this is interesting, and I've, I've even noticed this throughout COVID, uh, there's been all forms of relationships that have been developed, um, and people have never even met each other. They've never even been in the same city, like physically, face-to-face. They may have talked to each other through you know, Instagram Live or something like that, and they've become besties through uh, virtual relationships, but, but they've never sat in the same coffee shop with each other. That's the world we live in. So the question is, how do we navigate that world? Who writes the rules for that world? Again, you add to that all the conveniences of modern world in which we live in, uh, where you can get a divorce for whatever reason, just, you just don't like what's happening, you can go ahead and divorce. Or if you want to have uh, um, regular, consensual sex with a partner, and, and you don't want to have a child, you have the conveniences of uh, uh, freeing yourself from that reality called abortion. You have means by which you can, all of these things are at our fingertips right now. They're very convenient for us. So the question is, how do we live in the midst of these things? Again, you even add to that things like gender. How do we even navigate things like gender? Who gets to determine? Is it biology? Do we listen to biology? Or do we get to make decisions for that? What if my biology is something I disagree with? So we're in this odd moment as a human culture right now. Because on one level, we're saying science. Follow the science. What does science have to say? But on the other hand, we're saying, I don't agree with the science. We're, we're in a really odd space right now as human beings. And I would add one final word to just throw into all this. To me, the net result of all of this is extreme confusion, which just confuses human beings. 
And confusion on repeat leads to exhaustion. And I'm confident that's where some of you guys are at right now. You're exhausted. You're tired. You're weary. You feel lost. You feel as if you've been in a free fall. What I want to tell you is what's so absolutely beautiful about the gospel is that Jesus says, I'm going to give you a different way to live. And I'm going to give you a different moral code to live according to. It's different than the world. It will outlast this world and its system. And it's already broken forth on the first day of the week when Jesus rose again from the dead. That's the claim of New Testament followers of Jesus, is that this world came into this culture that is riddled with brokenness. That within this last little movement, I'm done here, that the values that were derived within modern morality, they're derived from self, human beings. You and I is this claim that we alone have the ability to create our own morality, our own moral codes. And you can, again, it doesn't take that lot of thinking to think beyond. Like, what, what does that prep us for? It actually preps us for incredible confusion. Because what happens if your moral codes clash with my moral codes? At some point, we've got, we've got warfare. Who's going to settle the dispute? Where does that come in? Are politicians, are we going to be trusting politicians to be doing that? What, how do we make sense of our lives in which we find ourselves in the midst of? And that some of the things in terms of like authentic, authenticity to self, any violation of you claiming a moral code over my authenticity to myself is viewed as hate speech or you're being violent to somebody else. And at some point, this is what's happening in our culture right now, is that there are literally laws being formed and framed to say we've got to protect this. And again, it's, just, it's following a, a, a lineage of thought. That's all I'm trying to say. Again, I'm not even necessarily giving my opinion so much as I'm just trying to present the data and just show sort of the stream that's kind of gone through the world in which we live in right now. And that any challenge to self-authenticity, whether it be my marriage, if my marriage presents in any form or, or, or shape uh, a, a challenge to me living into the fullness of my authentic self, then I just divorce. So all I do is just discard my wife because she's, she's holding me back. Again, that sounds wonderful on paper. It sounds like, how freeing is that? Until you talk to my wife, and she's heartbroken because she's just been discarded. And some of you have lived that story. It sounds absolutely freeing. It sounds absolutely like a paradise and a utopia almost, except it's not. And lastly, there is a philosopher, writer, Michael, I can't remember, I don't even know how to pronounce his last name. Uh, he said this, and I think he summarizes this so well, I'm done. We eat well as a modern culture. We drink well. We live well, but we do not have good dreams. I just think that's so powerful. We eat well. We drink well. We live well, but we, have, we don't have good dreams. Our, our reality promises us everything. We have everything. We live in a world where we can go and get any type of coffee we want at any time. We, can have, we have access to every type of food possible. We live in a virtual utopia in this place called the Central Coast. It promises to make us happy and satisfied and deeply content with life, but we're not. And what I would suggest to all of us is that what 
Scripture shows us is that this world system which we live in, the death, decay, deception, that's all part of it. It's all endemic with regard to it is coming to an end. And Jesus' birthing has brought forth a brand new life through his life, death, and resurrection and ascension into heaven. And this is what Peter's reminding us of. As followers of Jesus, you have a different way that you're being summoned and invited to live according to. And I'm going to finish with this final thought. Psalm 19, I think, as I was meditating on this this past week, it just really struck me. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making one wise. And within this, just he's saying that the law of God, God's word, God's word not only brings refreshment, but wisdom. What do we need more than anything in culture and society right now? We need refreshment. We need, because we're exhausted and tired and weary, and we need wisdom. Because we have a lot of knowledge, but not a lot of wisdom. We know a lot of stuff and data points and bits of information and 160 characters, and we can retweet them, and we can quote them, and we, but at the end of the day, our souls are dying. And here's what he says. Again, this is literally thousands of year old wisdom. And what the Christian claim is, is that God himself steps into this world, that the law takes upon human flesh and bones. The word of God literally begins to walk planet Earth and does everything exactly as God intended. So when you look at Jesus and you see Jesus showing kindness to people that don't deserve kindness, that's, that's what God intends for humanity. When you see Jesus giving himself for those that have brutally murdered and crucified him, this is what God is saying, I'm, I'm inviting you to walk into. First of all, as a recipient of knowing that you were once part of the problem. You once promoted the curse. You were once, not just simply one calling out everybody who was living cursed lives. You were part of that curse. But God, in grace and mercy, called you from the grave, gave you life, changed you, were someone to live according to a different way of being human. And this is exactly what Peter's connecting us into, saying, this is the life. Jesus. It's not by our own morality. It's, we're not trying to like sculpt a path forward for ourselves. We're simply receiving a path that's been given to us through Jesus and his apostles all the way back up to God himself, the very source of life himself. We sang that song, it's your breath and our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you. That's what we're talking about here. Start to finish is on our own We've just proven over and over and over again to break things. <laughs> Whatever optimism you might have had in enlightenment ideals or liberal thought, in other words, you as being a human being, you have your own volition, do whatever it is that you want. Whatever optimism there was, all of that has been over the past hundred plus years eroding. And in its place has been this disenchantment. And I think as a result of that, just a deep sense of despair. So that a kid who's 18, 19 years old can take a gun, knowing he's going to end his own life, and since he's going down, maybe end the lives of other people. That's the despair we live in. And I'm suggesting to you, there's a different way. 
there's a hope that comes through, first of all, knowing that our sins have been forgiven and washed and cleansed. And God has reconnected us to the source of life. And so now we, by his power, can become a source of life to other people that are living in despair and brokenness. I want to finish. I want to have us all stand. I'm going to just pray over us this morning. I went a little bit late, so I'm going to be done. Sorry about that. But what I want to do right now is I want to just invite us, wherever we're at, just to maybe whatever's going on in your heart, your soul, for you to just confess whatever your need is to God. Just confess it to him. And I want to pray over us. And uh, if you are here and you have need for anything like prayer, uh, right as soon as I'm done, you're more than welcome to go off to the side and have someone pray for you. I'm up here at the front. I'm happy to pray for you as well. They'll be available for you. But why don't we just close our eyes and just finish up with some closing thoughts. Uh, right now we have this moment to confess our sin, our need, our helplessness, maybe in some cases our hopelessness, our despair to Jesus. Maybe confess to him the fact that you have tried on your own to craft together some way of being human, being good, living a life that is productive and helpful. But at the end of the day, you find yourself just keep going back into these same cul-de-sacs of brokenness. Those become moments that just remind us we need Jesus more than ever. We need his forgiveness on our behalf for us. We need his power so that we can live in this world. And if you're here this morning and you sense that in your soul, I'm not going to ask for you to raise your hand. I'm just going to ask you right now, right now, call upon God. Just confess your need to him. Just say, God, I need you. I want you. Take the emptiness, the meaninglessness in my soul, the ache, the pain, the hurt, the sorrow, the despair, the anger. Take all of that and make me new. Give me life in the place of death. Give me hope in exchange for the despair. Give me an understanding that I'm loved in the place of constantly feeling like no one even knows I exist. And Father, I just ask that for anybody that just prayed that right now, that you would meet them right where they're at, that Jesus, that you would show them your grace in ways like never before. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you that that story that you began 2,000 years ago is still continuing to unfold. And God, we ask you that you would give us strength and energy to continue to follow you until the day, Jesus, where you will come back in fullness and establish once and for all that kingdom that will have no end. In the meantime, Lord, we are left with having to navigate pain, loss, grief, evil, death, deception. And yet at the same time, cling to you. Where else can we go? You alone, Jesus, have the words of life. So we look to you right now as the author and ultimately the finisher of everything that we find ourselves right now in the midst of this broken world. So God, as we scatter in it right now, as we leave, that you would remind us of how much you love us and how much you're with us. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.